by the time I actually came to shoot Jedi, I knew Star Wars and Empire backwards and forwards. I knew them extremely well. And I liked the apparent naivete and simplicity with which George had made Star Wars. I liked that style very much. I found the slight, possibly over-sophistication of a slightly more filmic, more visual way in which Kirsch told his story a little bit excessive for me, for my tastes. I'm a sentimental, very emotional Welshman uh, with a... With a rather maddening sense of humor. I have a twinkle in my eye, and I think the previous director was a different kind of person with perhaps a deeper sense of gloom or a deep, deeper sense of doom and maybe slightly less sense of humor. George is a different man again with a different kind of an attitude to relationships and so forth. Maybe a little bit more introverted, perhaps a little bit more distant. With maybe therefore a greater sense of action storyline and perhaps less interest in the way that people interact. For me, this film is about friendship and loyalty and trust and self-identification but don't take it too seriously let's have a laugh about it but let's when we're going to cry let's cry when we're going to laugh let's laugh and i think that's what i guess i brought to this movie and i like to think that's why i was asked to direct it turn of the jedi all right he's a big fan Star Wars fans and moof milkers everywhere. Welcome to episode number 98 of Blast Points. This is Jason. And it's Gabe. And it's a crazy week <laughs> with lots of Last Jedi stuff. When you're not expecting it, they're sneaking up on you from behind. It seemed like it was every day, just with no warning. New posters, new TV spots, new international trailers, teasers. It's like the floodgates are open. I don't know what to expect. I'm almost like scared to go online now. <laughs> something's going to come up and I'm going to have to drop what I'm doing and watch it. You're trying to get stuff done, trying to do things. Trying to maybe like spend 10 minutes, just clear my mind of Star Wars just for 10 minutes. <laughs> Can't do it. It's impossible. Lucasfilm won't let us. Later on, we're going to be talking about kind of forgotten name in Star Wars history, Richard Marquand. And director of our top two favorite Star Wars movies, right? You're number one, my number three. I was so. like, wait a minute, did Richard Marquand direct more than one Star Wars movie? 
<laughs> the wonderful Return of the Jedi. But first, before we get into that, we gotta we gotta go head first into some of this Last Jedi madness. Good, drama, beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Last Jedi. Should we start with the uh, the World Series of teaser trailers? Oh. For all the people watching baseball, just out of the blue, <laughs> practically a whole nother trailer. Because if we think back to like Force Awakens, like the first Force Awakens teaser, right? Wouldn't if you cut all the like fades to blackout, it was about 45 seconds, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So this was a lean, mean, just a bunch of new shots and some old shots to just take your breath away and f- make you freak out a little bit. That's the only way to become what you were meant to be. Darkness rises and light to meet it. I need someone to show me my place in all this. Come on! is not going to go the way you think. You know what's funny? Earlier that day, I was thinking about the international trailer and how that just pretty much had a new shot of 3PO. And I was like, you know, I bet you that's all pretty much we're going to get until... I mean, it's like 40-something days until the movie comes out. That's all we're going to get. We're not gonna, they're not going to show anything more new. Wrong. So let's let's dig into it. Let's talk about this uh, World Series trailer TV spot. Well, what do we got right away, right? Falcon in the rain. Just that. If that was the extra shot in the international trailer, we would have been like, oh, did you see? There's the Falcon in the rain. And we would have been happy. <laughs> That's just the warm up to the real meat. Right after that shot of the Falcon in the rain, it's something we always wondered would happen. I feel like we were afraid to talk about it. Luke Skywalker in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. Turning the lights on, looking around. Do you think he's going to fly it, or is he going to let Ray fly? I honestly have no idea. At this right? point, no clue. What was what, what? What episode were we talking about? That wasn't it. Uh, book and record. Things where Luke was flying the Falcon. Oh yeah, wasn't it um, Rebel Mission to Ordman Ordmantel? Maybe Man- I can't Man- remember. But hearing about it in a book was enough of a to freak you out a little bit. So yeah, I don't know. It's like seeing old Luke back on his own is enough. But if we see him, you know, doing some sweet Falcon maneuvers, I don't think people are ready for this movie. When he goes on that cockpit of the Falcon, is he going to be talking about Han? Walking into that cockpit has got to remind him of Han Solo. It's true. Well, and Kylo, too. And he's by himself. Ray isn't with him. Yeah, do you think he, like, sneaks in there when she's sleeping or something? Yeah, where's Chewie? Maybe they're all asleep. Where's R2? They can't show us that. <laughs> <laughs> it's way too soon. Luke and R2 team up is, man, that reunion's going to be too much. But this is five seconds into this teaser, right? <laughs> We're already, like... I think I I almost threw up. I was like, oh. <laughs> it's it's their way of like getting your attention, you know? Yeah. People are just trying to watch baseball, and all of a sudden Luke's in the Falcon. 
But then you get a little breather of, okay, it's like the regular trailer stuff. I've seen that. Maybe this trailer isn't going to hurt us. That was cool yeah. to put Luke in the Falcon, but okay. Whew, you yeah, know, catch yeah. your breath a little bit. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, look, it's the glove from the teaser for the last trailer that they cut out. So we finally get that. But then it's like Lucasfilm heard my pleas. Was it either last episode or two episodes ago? <laughs> like, what's the ceiling going to look like in Snoke's throne room? <laughs> and they're like, you know what, Gabe, we're going to let you know. So you can sleep just a little bit more at night. Or maybe not sleep. <laughs> Sit in the bed in a fetal position. Yeah. <laughs> I got, like, charcoal pencils out and I'm drawing, like, ribs on my ceiling so my house can look like Snoke's throne room. <laughs> Painting all my walls red. Listening to Sammy Hagar. Yeah. Oh, so let's talk about let's talk about Snoke's cool pad. Look at this. Praetorian guards all over the place. Is you got Hux standing there? Do you, I? You got to imagine we're seeing this at the point of view of Kylo Ren, probably. That's what I was thinking. Either just Kylo, or I don't think it's when Ray's there. It seems like Hux maybe wouldn't be there, but it's nice to see Hux. Right? Isn't this our first Hux shot? Yeah, it's it's little, but Hux is there. Okay, so here's something that's kind of freaking me out here right now, and I'm hoping I'm just hallucinating. But behind Hux, what is that like? Is that just a shadow of something? Or are there like weird, solid black robe, creepy things standing there? Like, am I hallucinating? What is that? Those are the sides of his eyebrow dryer thing, I think. Yeah, I see the eyebrow dryer, but like, because if, if there's just like little shadow creature people standing around, I don't think I'll, I'll feel the hate. It's like, it's too much. I'm out of here. I have to go now. Yeah. Somebody text me how the movie was. I need I need I need a breather. Um <laughs> no one ever saw Gabe again. Oh, but yeah, the crazy red wall like you think those are curtains or something and there's like a window behind that or he's just like Sammy Hagar all the way. I bet you that scene is the first time we see Snoke in the movie. Yeah, probably. It's like the unveiling of of flesh Snoke. Fleshy Snoke. And is that Snoke talking in this trailer? Darkness rises and light to meet it. It's definitely the second half. I know I've seen some people online thinking that the first half is somebody else. But it's weird because it it seems like a coherent sentence. I wonder if it's the kind of thing like with the Force Awakens stuff where they were using different takes where Snoke kind of had a different sound to his voice because of the different takes. I don't know. Okay. I'm sorry. This this whole episode is just going to be me freaking out about this. But if you watch that shot in motion, that shadow thing is moving. I think there's a tall, skinny, black robe, creepy dude standing over there. That's like Snoke's creepy dude friend. It's freaking me out a little bit. It just, you know, it just barely moves. Is Snoke going to have like, like how the Emperor had his little helpers? Are there going to be these like dark side creature dudes hanging out because it looks like it has blue eyes it kind of looks like something wearing like a really high collar yeah or a hood or something yeah because what what if there's other snoke race giant people like we haven't even thought about that right like okay snoke is some 
giant humanoid thing maybe there's more of them yeah i mean it looks like there's two of them it looks like there's and they're both standing in front of the uh the eyebrow dryer there's just so much in this movie we have no idea what we're, <laughs> what we're in for. Because, again, in these 45 seconds, there's still no Canto Bite, right? There's no. at least that whole section of the movie that we're not even getting teases of. You, you wouldn't even know Rose is in the movie yet. Or DJ. Or Laura or Hol- Dern. Or Holdo, right. Mm-hmm. There's a wild party going on in Snoke's path. <laughs> That's all I know. Yeah. The disco ball is about to drop. <laughs> After that, there's like some new shots of Ray just swinging that lightsaber like a crazy person. Yeah. Well, in the new uh, Luke face shot. Oh yeah, looking very concerned. Yeah. Just you can almost see the nacho cheese in his mustache. (laughs) We got the Falcon flying through crystals. Stuff from the other shot, other trailer. Guess the Poe Phasma fight has the extra fin shot from that other TV spot. The the Finn Phasma fight. Or, yeah, sorry. Did I say Poe? Yeah. I'm just thinking about shadow people with blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be useless for this whole episode. <laughs> Everywhere I look, I see shadow people now. <laughs> there's, a, there's a shot of uh, Finn flying a little ski speeder, giving his woo! Mm-hmm. This is Ric Flair. <laughs> Rick Finn. And well, and before that, we got an extra a new uh, Falcon firing its belly cannon shot too. Yeah, and sh- shortly after that too, a part that kind of messed me up just as much as Luke on the Falcon and um, Snoke's red room, the Millennium Falcon bursting out of the ground. Yeah, on Canto and, Bite, and people online are already freeze framing that and saying it looks like that the radar dish might get broken off again. Which makes me wonder if they're going to, like, if it does get broken off again, if they're going to either give it the old one back for people who didn't like the new one, or if it's just going to be a running joke that it gets a completely different shaped dish like every other movie. Maybe the next one will be, what other shapes are there? A triangle? <laughs> they just put a Dorito on top of it. <laughs> Crates made a Dorito. That's where they mine Dorito cheese. <laughs> the most <laughs> precious spice in the galaxy the dorito nacho cheese planet that's why the rebels couldn't keep their base trying to plan missions and they're just licking dorito cheese off their hands that part's probably after the part in the other trailer with the falcon flying through the the crystal caves yeah well there's some of that in this one too the crystal cave earlier you know what i was trying to think too i wonder if the big uh, climax of the whole crate fight is going to be the falcon showing up and saving the day again Mirroring the end of New Hope. Do you think Ray's flying it? I mean, how much? That, I don't. Yeah, know. I mean, is that how? Maybe that's how Ray and maybe Luke's in it too, or at least yeah, Ray and Chewie. The, they the way they cut this trailer together when Luke is saying this is not going to go the way you think, it sure makes it seem like he's talking to Ray, who's standing over him with the lightsaber. That definitely. Well, I mean, it's raining in both of those. We get to see Ray in the rain, which, and it's nice to see sabers in the rain again, like that other fine Star Wars film 
attack the clones. <laughs> <laughs> I almost, I mean, is that the uh, the whole cave kind of thing where she's fighting Luke and she she beats him? Again, it's like everything with Last Jedi. I have no clue. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to believe, what to think anymore. Yeah, I hope you got a lot of a lot of sleep last month. There's no no sleep till December fifteenth, or the shadow spooky dudes are going to show up <laughs> in your dreams. And it's not safe to watch TV anymore <laughs> because you don't know what it's. You might be watching sports. You might be watching the news, and there's going to be new Last Jedi footage. And it's just going to mess your whole day up. Moral of the story is you should watch every sports game <laughs> from now till December. We need to watch more sports. <laughs> all the sports. All at the same time. Yeah, ordinarily, just this trailer would be enough. But there's more. There's more craziness messing with our heads. Uh, there was a Japanese poster, which I felt like an idiot because I saw it. I looked at it. Oh, look, there's more ships. <laughs> and then I looked at it again. Oh, yeah, look at all those ships. And then like five times into looking at it, it's, oh, yeah, Luke and Ray are in different spots. <laughs> <laughs> What's go- oh, there's the blue lightsaber. And then there was the uh, like Elmo Draft House glasses that they give out. The cups where Luke also had the blue lightsaber. So what do you think's going on with that? I Again, I have no clue what's because going on. It could just be messing with us for the poster, like the Return of the Jedi posters when he had the green, or he still had the blue saber. Han having the blue, like they could have made a poster for Empire with Han holding the blue saber and it would have <laughs> blew everybody's mind. Maybe he just has to cut open uh, the, the sea monster or something to get some guts out of it. But I don't know. I kept thinking about it. Like, it would be pretty cool for Luke to get his father's saber back because you'd think at some point Ray's going to make her own, right? Or not? I don't know. I really like the idea that that saber, Anakin's saber, is now Ray's saber and kind of what that means. She's carrying on the legacy. Yeah, that's true. But then why doesn't he have his. Green saber, his Return of the Jedi saber. I don't. Know, I wonder if at some time, I mean, there's all that stuff of Ray with her staff. I wonder if Luke takes the saber and kind of here, here's how you handle it. Yeah, or he doesn't give it give it back till later. Or if they really, uh, if he ends up fighting Kylo or something, Kylo could break or take the green saber. Yeah, it's like I can see it would be cool for that saber to kind of get passed on to the new generation. But then part of me just wants Ray to build a double ended green lightsaber and just go totally over the top with it. Since, you know, it is, does seem kind of a tease to have her be really good with a staff and not, you know, do something with a, a double ended lightsaber. I don't know. But then it's like, if Luke Skywalker handling a lightsaber again, it's kind of like, it should be a major moment. And if he's just taking like, his father's saber and his saber from the first two movies and just like showing Ray here, this is how you turn it on. You know, (laughs) don't, don't look down the uh, barrel of it. I I almost made that mistake (laughs) when I, when I was a boy, I would hate to see the moment where Luke ignites a lightsaber be that, you know what I mean? Well, unless it's like in Jedi, when uh, Vader turns on Luke's saber, if he just grabs it and turns it on and gives her the, 
lightsaber speech. Unless it was completely intentional, and originally the design for the poster had the green saber, and if they were like, we can't reveal that yet, as silly as it is, and said, just make it blue, and that'll mess with people. Well, or it doesn't go with the color scheme. They didn't want it to look too much like a Christmas poster. <laughs> but, I mean, at least they, he has the right... He has the blue lightsaber hilt in his hand, so it's yeah, it's hard to say how much is like them giving it away and how much is them just messing with us because they've been known to mess with us. Yeah, and who I mean, Ray very well and probably will at some time create her own saber. I mean, what was it? Um, Kathy Kennedy was on the Star Wars show last week. She was talking about the future of. The Star Wars saga and how they're figuring that out right now, kind of. And the question we've been wondering for a while, what's going to happen after Episode Nine? You know, we're sitting down now, we're talking about the next 10 years of Star Wars stories, and we're looking at narratively where that might go. Future stories beyond Episode Nine with these new characters, Ray, Poe, Finn, BB-8. But we're also looking at working with people that are interested in coming into the Star Wars world and taking us to places that we haven't been yet. And that's exciting, too, because it's a vast galaxy far, far away. I mean, I think it's just good to hear that the plan is that these new characters, Rafe and Poe, just after nine, will be like, OK, that's it. See you later, guys. It was good. But we'll still have to see. I mean, they had said in the past that they understand that, you know, they might need to give a little bit of a break, which I think makes sense with the, at least with the, the saga movies, so, you know, take three years off or something and then come back and just do the Star Wars stories for a couple of years. There was some good stuff with Dave Filoni recently too, right? Of hinting that, that he may be moving on to something other than animation. Right. Possibly. Mm-hmm. He was talking in an interview that he was saying that he learned from the best hanging out with Ryan Johnson and he was kind of mysterious. Imagine that with Dave Filoni. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. It could be here. It could be there. But yeah, I mean, people are thinking, what, it could be at the live-action TV. He could be getting a live-action film. He could be making a traveling shadow puppet show. <laughs> Who knows? We still don't know the next uh, Star Wars story film either, right? Like, that's going to be coming soon, I would think. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. I was driving, and I was like, wait a minute. Didn't they say we were going to find that out in the summer? I thought they said before the end of the year. But we're both probably, what do we know? We're probably <laughs> we're just thinking about Snoke's shoes all the time. Yeah, this next uh, month and a half, is it's the fun times, but it's the rough times. Because there's going to be so much new stuff. Because remember with, La- with Force Awakens too, like the last, I want to say like the last two weeks, like every day there was a new TV spot. A lot to look forward to. Galaxy far, far away. The next chapter in the Star Wars saga. Revenge of the Jedi. Coming next summer to a theater in your galaxy. All right, so like we were saying at the beginning of the show, Richard Marquand, director of Return of the Jedi, and someone barely ever mentioned in the history of Star Wars. There's been long-standing questions on just how much 
he actually was involved in Return of the Jedi. But like when you go through and do a little bit of the research and try and learn a little bit learn a little bit about Richard Marquand, you realize though his involvement in Star Wars maybe wasn't as much as Erwin Kirshner was personally involved in Empire. He's influenced Star Wars far past Return of the Jedi still. Like some of the stuff he did is still happening in modern Star Wars. I mean the more you dig into it that he was more hands-on than you might think, even though, you know, Lucas ultimately had final control over the films. And it's interesting going back and kind of reading this stuff, too, because people, I think, have forgotten that that's kind of how Star Wars is. Because now with all the directors being fired and, you know, Kathleen Kennedy kind of getting rid of people that don't follow the vision, like, that's really kind of how Star Wars always has been, other than when George Lucas is directing it himself. So a little bit of that happened in Empire. And if anything, probably how much Irving Kirshner kind of did Empire more his way than Lucas would have wanted probably led to kind of how it is now with uh, with Richard Marquand and then kind of what's carried over to the to the new films. Yeah, so the, the Richard Marquand story really kind of begins with Empire. You know, Lucas had a horrible time filming the original film, as we, we talked about in our um, in our New Hope episode, and it's kind of legendary how miserable he was making that movie. He had a heart attack, and by the time it came around to The Empire Strikes Back, he wasn't on the set as much, and I don't think anybody can blame him for that. And also, he was bankrolling the movie completely. Yeah, and I think people forget that how close that movie was to kind of running out of money and not even getting finished. So Erwin Kirshner would go and film the stuff in the UK, but a lot of the work in the editing room sounded like it was George and Marsha, because that's really what he likes doing the most is editing. But the thing that kind of legendary and everybody knows that drove Lucas crazy with Empire is that Kirshner was filming it to a cut that he imagined and he didn't get the the master shots which are George Lucas's like um he has to have those master shots. Yeah, he likes to have a lot of a lot of footage to cut from. Kirshner was just yeah, filming the edit and not just filming footage. And Kirshner was having actors improvise and explore their characters and riff a little bit off the script, which drove him absolutely insane. That's one of the reasons why everybody cites Empire as one of their favorites, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then in March of 1981, they're doing post-production on Rares of the Lost Ark. They're doing scoring sessions in the UK, and they're starting to ramp up production on Return of the Jedi, then known as Revenge of the Jedi. And Lucas and uh, producer Howard, Howard Kazanjian, which I think that's how you pronounce that last name, they're coming up with lists of possible directors. And a lot of this information we're getting is from um, Jonathan Rensler's Making of Return of the Jedi book from a few years back, which is still, just like all of his Making of original trilogy books, absolutely amazing. Yeah, if you have not read those, definitely pick up. The paper version, the iPad versions are phenomenal with extra videos and things. And 
if you do have them, read them again because there's so much packed in there. I guarantee you, you'll find a ton of stuff that you just couldn't even absorb the first time reading it. So on this first list of names for director of Revenge of the Jedi, you got Alan Parker, you got Mike Newell, Lewis Gilbert, Peter Weir, Peter Yates, and David Lynch, who, as time goes on, continues to be a major contender for the director of Return of the Jedi. But we'll get more into that later. Now, Marquand is not on the list at all. And his agent told him that they're looking for directors for the third Star Wars movie, and they're looking for directors that have a lot of TV experience, are good with actors, and can do it on a budget. Now, Richard Marquand is finishing this movie called Eye of a Needle, and it's screened for George Lucas with the director, Richard Marquand, being a possibility for the third Star Wars movie. Lucas likes it, and his quote was that it was a tight, clean, strong movie. But that's about as far as it goes. And another list is made. This one is even more ridiculous. They got Richard Donner, Terry Gilliam, John Borman, who did Excalibur and The Exorcist II, which that would have been amazing, Richard Attenborough, John Carpenter, David Cronenberg, Joe Dante, Richard Lester, and Tony Scott. Yeah, pretty much anyone you can think of. Was on the on the list at one point. I was five years old, and I think I was on the list at one yeah. point. <laughs> There's this kid in in Muskegon that's just ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> we think he can do it on budget, and he's got TV experience where he's watched a lot of Sesame Street. Yeah, so yeah. he he sent us four drafts of a screenplay too already. <laughs> They're all about Lobot. I don't know. Yeah. He says he's flexible though. <laughs> So that list gets narrowed to about 20, 30 names. And Howard Kazanjian interviews a lot of these people. And after that's narrowed to 12. And then when they get to that final 12, then George Lucas starts interviewing them, which I could only imagine what that was like. <laughs> yeah, just a, a day hanging out with Lucas, taking turns sitting in the big chair. Do you want a gumball? Or racing in his Ferrari. Doesn't David Lynch talk about uh, Lucas? taking him for a race in his Ferrari to go get a salad. <laughs> so George Lucas interviews David Lynch. The two of them are hanging out. And according to the story in Renzler's book, George Lucas takes David Lynch through ILM and shows him the designs for the Ewoks. Oh, what are you? This is Chief Chirpa. Popaloo. There's a Popaloo. I'm very fond of Popaloo. <laughs> and then they get in George Lucas's Ferrari, and they go to some restaurant in San Francisco that only has salads. <laughs> David Lynch supposedly has a really bad migraine and has to bail. I love reading that story because I can't tell... If he just has the migraine or he's saying he has a migraine because of everything that happened that day. <laughs> it's like it's one very... it's one step away from him picking up a banana phone. What? I have to go? Sorry, George, I have to go. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with your teddy bear movie. So also around this time, Richard Marquand goes to George and Marsha Lucas's house where supposedly Marsha makes like a pot roast or something. And the, yeah. two, the two of them like seem to hit it off really well. They have a deep interest in history together. Uh, Marquand is actually a fan of Star Wars and Empire. It, it would seem like Marquand was going to get the job. Maybe, maybe they share a mutual love of pot roast together. Marsha makes the best pot roast in the world. I don't know how to cook. I've never cooked anything in my life. Doesn't get much better than just like eating pot roast at George Lucas's house. Like, <laughs> I would have probably just went home and be like, that's fine. You don't even have to hire me. 
it's about the best it's gonna get. I beg, please don't hire me. Yeah, because it's never this, this situation is never gonna get better. Yeah, yeah, I would be looking at everything. Thank God they didn't have like smartphones back then, because I'd be like taking pictures of his toilet. We probably had like a movie screen that came out of the wall or something. Like you know, you... I'd be looking for like stray Lucas hairs on the ground. Put one in my pocket. I have a pair of his shoes. <laughs> He'll, that one, Lucas will never let us go to his house. No. Oh, no. 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 So Howard Kazanjian calls up, gives the job to David Lynch to direct Revenge of the Jedi. David Lynch declines. No surprise. And I even before I got home, I kind of crawled into a phone booth and phoned my agent. I said, there's no way. I know no way I can do this. He said, David, 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 calm down. You don't have to do this. And um, so, George, bless his heart, I told him on the phone the next day that he should direct it. It's his film. He invented everything about it. But he doesn't really love directing. And so someone else did direct that film. But um, I, did, I called my lawyer and told him that I wasn't going to do it. And he said, you just lost... I don't know how many millions of dollars. So they call up guy number two, Richard Marquand. Richard Marquand gets the job. And proceeds to get drunk on champagne, right? <laughs> as, as you do. Yeah, then on May 27th, Hollywood Reporter announces that Marquand is directing Revenge of the Jedi. Now, Richard Marquand, he gets into movies and cinema and stuff, supposedly at a very young age, he said. And then he... Went to, I believe he went to Cambridge, did a bunch of plays. He joins the Royal Air Force. He spends time in Hong Kong. Sometime in there, he marches with Martin Luther King in Selma, Alabama. I'm not sure how that fits into the, well, the legend of Richard, Richard Marquand. If they ever make the, the Marquand movie, they have a really awesome montage, like a third of the way into the movie, <laughs> of him just like traveling the world on all his adventures. Eventually, he gets a job doing research for the BBC. <laughs> Where he does a documentary called The Search for the Nile in 1971. Now, this is played in the United States in 1972. It wins two Emmys. Then he wins more Emmys in the United States for something called Big Henry and the Polka Dot, which I have not seen, but it sounds amazing. And his first feature-length film is a movie from 1978, a horror film called The Legacy. You probably have not seen The Legacy. Maybe you have. But you should really watch the trailer for The Legacy. It's um, it's unbelievable. And it has a lot of puppet effects with an evil cat. Six have come to claim his inheritance. Five discover the lifeless body. Four watch in horror as another dies. Then there were three. Then two. But only one can receive... The legacy. Catherine Ross. Sam Elliott. And Roger Daltrey. The legacy. A birthright of living death. Why is this the first time hearing of that? <laughs> you never told me that. So it's on my list. So after that, he does a TV movie called The Birth of the Beatles in 1979. About like the Beatles' early days. So he had a lot of experience. He had done features. He'd worked with special effects. He'd done documentaries. It sounds like he would be right up George Lucas's alley. And he was a very political guy. He Supposedly when him and Lucas sat and talked about all the allegories of Return of the Jedi, he, 
you know, got all the Vietnam stuff for Endor. Yeah, on paper, it sounds like a perfect match. Yeah. August 1981, Richard Marquand moves into a a rented house near Lucasfilm. And kind of quickly after that, he's going out location going location scouting. They're in Arizona. They're in the Redwood Forest. They're taking photos. They get dune buggies and go out to the desert. In one key moment in the development of Return of the Jedi, they're going over creatures. And Lucas asks Richard Marquand, who's Admiral Akbar going to be? And they kind of go back and forth like, oh, you pick. No, you pick. And George Lucas is like, oh, you're the director. You pick. <laughs> and Marquand picks the red, bug-eyed fish man. That we now know is Admiral Akbar. Because he said, I think it's good to tell kids that good people aren't necessarily good looking people and that bad people aren't necessarily ugly people. Which can't, that's, that's Star Wars in a nutshell almost. The entire Mon Calamari race and the awesomeness of which they are, Admiral Radis, all the way to back to Akbar, we have Richard Marquand to thank for yeah. that. And that just that enough should put him in the uh, great heroes of Star Wars. <laughs> His bust should be in the Jedi library <laughs> as uh, the picker of the Mon Calamari race. So around this time, too, he's going over the script with Lucas and Kasdan, and there is all kinds of fascinating business going on. It's getting a little away from just uh, Richard Marquand stuff, but yeah, if you have the, the Jedi book or you pick it up, just just jump to the... That section where they're kind of just going over the, the script meetings and just brainstorming crazy stuff. It's really fascinating to read those guys interacting. Well, and some of Marquand's contributions, I mean, first of all, you get when you're reading like the transcripts of like their script meetings, you get the sense that Richard Marquand was a mediator between Kasdan and Lucas. The two mm-hmm. of them pretty much wanting to like fist fight at all times. Yeah. Well, wasn't there some kind of tension because Kazan initially wasn't going to come back, right? He was there, but necessarily didn't want to be there. Well, and Kazan was like obsessed, like, you gotta kill somebody. First act, everybody's gotta die. And, you know, you got George Lucas, I'm not killing anybody! They're my family! (laughs) These are my babies! Well, it was Richard Marquand who said the movie needed more Millennium Falcon and offered Why Doesn't Lando fly the Falcon in the end to give some give Lando something to do. It was Richard Marquand who suggested that Leia kill Jabba with the chain. Yeah, he definitely was carrying his weight during pre-production. There's a part where Marquand meets all the actors, and it's kind of great. Like what Harrison Ford comes up to him and is just like, I want to die. Like The first thing he says when he meets Richard Marquand, I want to die in this thing. And he, I think Harrison Ford said, I want as little lines as possible. I don't want to say anything. He just wanted to get back in that boat and row. <laughs> row away from everything. So fall of 1981 comes and George Lucas is still off in California trying to finish the script. With Kasdan. Marquand's off in the UK supervising sets being built. Costuming is going on. And then finally in January of 1982, filming begins. And the first day of filming is the sandstorm. The infamous deleted sandstorm scene in Return of the Jedi. And even watching like those deleted scenes of the sandstorm on the Blu-ray. Man, what a horrible first day. 
But at least like every day after that was step up. But yeah, that I wouldn't have wanted to been there. No, like <laughs> welcome to Star Wars. You got fans on at top volume. Nobody can hear anything. Supposedly R2 like went off in like completely the wrong direction. Just everything was going wrong. So like as as time goes on, Lucas is on set a lot more. And the two of them were blocking out shots together. And pretty much Lucas is doing like a lot of the second unit filming. Lucas was working every single day. But according to Richard Marquand, he said, but I had warned him that was the way I wanted to work. This is in the book. I just said, look, George, if I'm going to do this properly, you've got to give me your time. I mean, he hadn't necessarily planned to be in London for the shoot, but I said, you've got to be there. I like my producer around, and you're more than the producer. You wrote the goddamn thing, so let's get it right. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, there's there's the the popular myth that Lucas was hovering over the set because he wanted to control everything, which, you know, that could be true. But also, like, in the book, it says, like, Marquand kind of wanted him there. Yeah, it it feels like Marquand kind of got the production mentality that they wanted to have and that it was a collaboration and he was there to do his part and he wanted Lucas there to make sure it was what Lucas wanted. So eventually Lucas is doing all this second unit stuff and he decides he kind of needs to get back to California and needs to do all this stuff and they're working on Skywalker Ranch, getting that up and going at this time. So he brings in Roger Christian to do second unit who we all know aside from Roger Christian directing the massive battlefield earth was highly involved in the original a new hope kind of around this time too you start getting hints that Marquand was kind of in over his head there's talk of about 28 days into the shoot how he looked pale tired and exhausted and kind of what we were saying with him kind of wanting Lucas there there's stuff in the book where he's talking about how he's intimidated by George Lucas. The cast is starting to share concerns on being confused on who the director of this movie really is. But filming goes on. August 1982, and A New Hope is re-released into theaters, which I th- it was kind of interesting, too, that they said that A New Hope being released in theaters in August helped cover the budget for finishing a lot of the model work and special effects that needed to be done. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about the the olden days when it wasn't like now. They had to go return return the pop cans. It wasn't a sure thing, and yeah, someone was uh, yeah picking up recyclables so the crew could eat. Shortly after this time, in August, a director's cut is screened at George Lucas's house. Now, this is kind of the turning point for Richard Marquand. Now, Lucasfilm's Howard Rothman says in the book, George knew it wasn't going to be good. He had this kind of dread on what we were going to see. He told me that when they sat down to watch it, Richard Marquand said, we've worked really hard, and this is as good as the movie's going to be. So they screen this Return of the Jedi director's cut. And right away, the first shot, or the first scene, with Vader and Jerjerod talking, right away, supposedly they knew it was a disaster. Where it would be like a close-up of Jerjerod's face, and then Vader's face, and then Jared Rod's face. I hope somewhere this cut is on a tape somewhere and someday we'll get to see this. There's a weird part of Chewbacca being thrown down the stairs at Jabba's palace. There's talk of uh, Jabba the Hutt 
talking in a Truman Capote kind of voice, which yeah, that's zero of the hut right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lucas didn't dislike all of it. <laughs> he wrote that down in his book. Save that for later. Like, there's a part on the skiff where Luke explains to Han that he had to get them all onto the open to effect their escape at the pit. Lando hugging Luke and Leia goodbye in the Rebel hangar. All the stuff with Vader strangling Jerjerod with the Force to get in the Death Star elevator. Which, that's in the deleted scenes, and that's a really weird scene. You may not enter. I will wait his convenience. Very good. So they all watched this thing, and they pretty much said, Thank you, Richard. And according to the book, the quote is, George took it over at that point. He just rolled up his sleeves because he knew he was going to be in the editing room for a long time to get this film done. And at that point... Richard Marquand, his involvement for the with Return of the Jedi for a while until reshoots is kind of done. Well, and some of it, I think, is understandable because you get, and especially, I think, going back to these movies where there weren't these giant blockbuster franchise movies, not every director and probably not many people are built for that kind of giant production. Like, it basically ruined George Lucas's life in a way right with uh his marriage falls and fell apart by return of the jedi and he kind of you know put his entire life and well-being aside to make these to get these movies done well it was when he was in the uk working on jedi was when skywalker ranch was being built and marcia began to have an affair with the the guy who was doing the stained glass windows at skywalker ranch so it, it's hard to blame somebody for not being able to uh, keep up. It's a huge, relentless machine of crazy. It's just like what goes on nowadays. Getting all the moving parts of a Star Wars movie to go in the right direction. Where people like you and I sit down there in the theater, and we sit there and it's, it's a Star Wars movie. It feels like a Star Wars movie. That's a lot more difficult than... I think most people think about. Well, I think it's interesting if you think, too, that Kathleen Kennedy has known Lucas for years. They've been friends for years. She's probably heard all these stories firsthand of all the roadblocks and headaches and problems that you could have. And I think it's kind of shows why she's being the way she is with the new films. And like if things aren't working, you cut it off right there. Because you have a, you know, it's a normal movie, plus there's puppets and creatures and spaceships, and there's just layers and layers of nonsense that they have to deal with. Rogue One has had issues, and Force Awakens had issues, and Han Solo had issues. Like, they're not normal movies to make. You know, so much of these movies, there's what's filmed and then the, all the post-production. It doesn't sound like Mark One was involved in the scoring or the sound mix or any of that stuff. That was pretty much all Lucas. Well, and it's interesting because even around that time, according to the book, too, Lucas is talking about his retirement. 
and he's talking about doing more Star Wars. And he says, I, I don't want to have to devote the same time and energy, the, the creative impetus that I had for the last three. But there are people around me who can do it. And Steven Spielberg has expressed an interest. He's a person who can run around in that world as well as I could, even better. And I think I would enjoy it as much as if I had done it myself. And I think the audience would enjoy it as much if I had done it myself. And I think there is a possibility that there are some other Steven Spielbergs out there somewhere. I mean, that pretty much sounds like he's talking about the sequel trilogy. When he was saying that, his his assistant on Raiders was Kathleen Kennedy. It all makes sense where it ended up. Well, and it's I think now we know, too, even with the prequels, like it sounds like he wanted to do the prequels like Jedi, but no one would agree to direct it or write it because they were like, it's yo, it's yours. You got to do it. This is the first of November, 1994. Today is my first day of writing the new Star Wars series. I took my kids to school this morning. Uh, my oldest daughter was sick all night. I got no sleep whatsoever. All I need is an idea. Well, because I think that was the thing I think I got the most out of reading those making of books is just how much the decisions he made during the prequels, whether people agree with them or not, seem justified in his mind by the experiences he went through making the original three movies and all the headaches and things. And Richard Marquand is one of those things where, you know, it's hard to know if someone's up to the task of doing such a momentous movie with so many moving parts and, you know, dealing with special effects and all like when they get into post-production, it's like starting over with a whole nother movie. So it's pretty impressive that, that Lucasfilm, and Disney have been able to get such a well-oiled Star Wars machine, even with all the the hiccups, like that they can make get one of these movies out in two years is pretty amazing. Well, and that quote from Lucas just makes me think, you know, there are other Steven Spielbergs out there. Well, you know, they have J.J. Abrams, best known as an other Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> so the Richard Marquand, he. he he comes back for press. He comes back. He does some reshoots for the movie. And he's quoted around the time of release, the, around the time of the release of Return of the Jedi, that uh, the next thing he does will have no robots and no explosions. And he does a couple of movies. He does a movie called uh, Until September. And he does Jagged Edge with, uh, I think it's Jeff Bridges and Glenn Close, that films that I've never seen because they have no robots and no explosions. And he, he starts doing a movie called Hearts of Fire with Bob Dylan. Supposedly there were problems with making with that. And then in 1987, he dies after a stroke, unfortunately. Which all kind of leads to the, the the mystery of Richard Marquand. And, you know, there's really, there's not like a definitive interview or commentary or anything about the film. I, I did think it was nice in the book. It talks about his funeral and that George Lucas attended his funeral. I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. It never seemed like there was a bad blood between the two, right? Like it, it seems like with reading the book, Richard Marquand knew that this was the deal that he was doing. Yeah. And it sounds like even with interviews with his family, like his family didn't seem to feel like there was any bad feelings or between the two. It was just kind of he did what he needed to do and what his cut was a little rough and Lucas did what he needed to do and got the movie finished. And the movie turned out great. <laughs> it's my favorite Star Wars movie of all time. <laughs> so they did something right. Yeah. 
it's neat to see, uh, especially now that we're in, you know, the, the golden age of new Star Wars, just how much the production of the films mirrors the films themselves with kind of everything coming full circle and going back that, you know, all the hubbub and people freaking out about the way the new films is being made. No new films are being made is really the same way the old films were being made. And I think just people have forgotten because they were like six years old at the time and didn't realize <laughs> what goes into getting these movies on the screen. Lucas didn't just say, I'm out and uh, jump in his Ferrari and drive away. Like, <laughs> you know, him and Kathleen Kennedy talked about this stuff. It's, it's not anything new. Jedi from the desert fortress of Jabba the Hutt Jedi. to the Death Star of the Galactic Empire to the forest city of the Ewoks. This is the climactic chapter in the Star Wars saga. Remember the Force. Rejoice in the triumph. Return of the Jedi, rated PG. Now playing at a theater in your galaxy. Hi, this is Vanessa Marshall. I play Harrison Dulan, Star Wars Rebels, and you're listening to Blast Points with Jason and Gabe. May the Force be with you always. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. We say it every week. iTunes reviews. It helps the show immensely. If After you're done listening, if you listen through iTunes, you go over there, pull up Blast Points, leave a review, write something, and we'll read it on an upcoming show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, too, so you never, ever miss an episode. Yeah, we wouldn't want you to miss an episode. No. Don't do it. To make George look sad. Um, and definitely check out our Facebook page. Instagram, Twitter, um, BlastPointsPodcast.com, where you can get a Blast Points t-shirt. Um, you can send us an email, which I don't think anyone has. No, you can send <laughs> us our you can send us our first email. Yeah, yeah, and we always love it too when folks uh, share out the podcast. Like, tell your friends if you got friends who you think would like Blast Points, share it on the social media of your choice. Let people know. Help us out. Yeah, we appreciate it. And so this is episode 98, and so we are so very close to episode 100, and we're planning a gigantic 100th episode spectacular, and to do this, we need your help. So to help us out, if you're listening on your phone right now, do a voice recording on your phone and send us that voice recording. Tell us your favorite episode, how you found Blast Points. Um, if you have requests for imitation voices for us to do, tell us that. We'll do it all. Ask us questions, Star Wars questions, any kind of questions. 
how, do you, how to fix like a leaky sink. We'll do our best to try and help you out. Yeah, because it's going to be a super duper double sized. It's going to get a little weird episode. <laughs> we need help with this one. Yeah. We need you. Yeah. <laughs> not to get too sappy, but like the fact that we've made it to 100 episodes is probably more about the fact that people have listened than us. Yeah. So it's more a thank you to you. We hope. Because <laughs> what we got in store might not seem like a thank you, but uh, it's, it's going to be a fun one. And yeah, the more, uh, the more we get from you people, the more fun it's going to be for everybody, I think. So yeah, so send us voice messages, send us emails, send us whatever. And if you play a voice message, we'll play it on the show, too. So you can be on the show, too. You can just pick a random number and send it. Send us that because we got a huge response for that. So, you know, yeah, we'll if do... you just want to send us a number 13 or 72, <laughs> we'll take it. We'll do more Rusty Miller trivia if you want. We'll do with pretty much... It's open to anything. It's anything you want. It's Blast Point's request hour. But that about wraps up number 98 here. We'll be back next week for 99. An episode I've been looking forward to doing for a very long time, but that's all we'll say. And there'll probably be 15 more TV spots and international posters, and maybe there'll be some Last Jedi spoons (laughs) where we see Snoke on a skateboard or whatever. So, yeah, it's going to be a good time. Snoke kite. I'm not even going to laugh because I bet you there will be a Snoke kite. (laughs) It's going to happen. On that note, thanks for listening, folks. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you next time. May the Force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the Force be with you. One, two, and three, seven, eight, and nine are yet to be made. And it's a big question mark, and we all hope they will be. And I know that one, two, and three are in George's mind, because he's actually told me basically what the outlines of those stories are. They involve a a much earlier period in time. But he chose to start in the middle. Knowing the convoluted way, or slightly knowing the convoluted way that George's mind works, I suspect that he might go back to the beginning. But it really is not a known fact. I really, really do not know. I only hope that he does do some more. Made a full-